Hello, wrestling fans. My name is Al Getz, and welcome to another exciting episode of Charting the Territories. With me, as always, is my co-host, John Boucher. John, how are you doing on, uh, are you, uh, have you recovered from Cinco de Mayo? <laughs> I have. I'm fine. Everything's okay. fine. Did you there do was, anything uh, on Cinco de was, Mayo? There was no, yeah, no, no, no. No, no, I didn't even no. realize it was Cinco de Mayo until fairly late in the day, at which point I just, you know, no, no. Well, it's May. It's May. I hope yeah. everyone's April showers have, have yielded to, to May flowers. Those I, are my wishes. I didn't realize it was Cinco de Mayo until uh, this was Friday night. I went to go to dinner at Moe's uh, Southwest Grill, and yeah. it's in a strip mall along with a Mexican restaurant. And there was not a parking spot available in the whole area um, because that, that restaurant was just jam packed with people. And also the restaurant recently opened too. So they probably, oh. this was part of their extravaganza grand opening slash Cinco de Mayo slash, Hey, Hey, it's Friday. Yeah. I do love a, a blood orange margarita. I got to say, I'm not a fan of regular margaritas, but I love a blood orange, a frozen blood orange margarita well there you go when we, when we start our charting the margaritas podcast <laughs> we know uh which one john is going to rank the highest there you go this month we're going to look at one of these smaller territories operating in the early 1970s joe dusick's all-star promotion based out of nebraska in 1971 a masked wrestler runs roughshod over the baby faces even a broken leg didn't stop his claw-like hold over the territory. And when one wrestler tragically passes away, will the promotion use it as part of an angle? You betcha! Also, the son of a wrestler who participated in a, a notorious shoot against Joe Stetcher has a shoot fight of his own in the dressing room. Plus, we'll also take a look at an unwrapped mummy. All that and a whole lot more this month on Charting the Territories, but I want to start by talking about the recent passing of two uh, notable figures in the world of wrestling historians or wrestling reporters, uh, and that is Don Luce and Dean Rasmussen. Um, Don was part of the old guard of wrestling historians. Me, personally, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a part of the new guard. I, I really didn't start being what people would consider a historian until maybe about five or six years ago. So, John, I wanted to ask you if you had any interactions with Don. I have never, never met him and never corresponded with him, no. Um, but, I mean, it's like I think all just by – it'd be impossible to be remotely uh, into wrestling history and not have interacted with his work. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We may, not have, yeah. we may not have interacted with him, but his work for sure. I actually was reading an article uh, that was written several years ago on slam wrestling. And Don was quoted as saying, uh, you know, when it comes to the subject of wrestling his history and wrestling research, he said, what gets me is there was so much BS from the, from these promoters and solving what the truth was is really what's interesting. Yep. Yep. And that's definitely the approach uh, we take here at Charting the Territories is we don't just take for a fact what has been reported or copied and pasted on websites. We really try and get to the truth of the matter. I think and there's I think there's actually a, a, a maybe from that same slam wrestling article. I'd have to look it up. There's some interaction with him and Al Haft. We're out. We're Al, Al says, Haft. don't take it so seriously. 
Yeah. Yes. It's like, like, oh, God, this is why we have to. Well, you know, that's the thing. So um, as we mentioned last month, I'm I'm in the late stages of my second book covering Leroy McGurk's territory from 74 to 76. And I, you know, I've solicited feedback from people. And so many people, you know, find it odd that I don't list the dates of title changes when I do title histories. And the truth of the matter is, by and large, the promoters didn't track the dates as things were were important. Remember, in most territories, the TV ran on a bicycle through all the different towns. So you can't say last Tuesday night. You can't say on May 5th. Because if, you know, it airs in one market, doesn't air there until June. Now, all of a sudden, they know, whoa, our TV's outdated. What's the deal? And you can't say, you know, last week because by the time it gets to those other places, it, you know, it happened several weeks ago. So they say recently, and maybe yeah. they'll name the town, this title change happened. And, re- you know, the reality is if you wanted to track that for a length of reigns, you would need to do each television market within a territory separately. Because a lot of the times when you see a title being held up, those are town specific angles that didn't apply to the rest of the territory or maybe applied to some towns and not others. So, you know, we they never really wanted you to keep track of, of these things. They didn't want you to keep track of wins and losses. That's why they didn't emphasize it. And in my opinion and in my research, I feel that the same thing goes with the dates of these title changes. The promoters didn't think of them as relevant. Al Haft probably, you know, would have told Don Luce that. You know, it's one thing to say this wrestler held the title this many times or for approximately this long, but to try and narrow it down to the days is not really what wrestling was was about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And then the other uh, person that passed away, Dean Rasmussen, I, um, I absolutely had uh, interactions with him, whether it's through email or through, you know, uh, instant messaging. We probably traded tapes together at some point in the uh the mid 90s but off the top of my head i can't recall a, a specific uh interaction but we we certainly crossed paths in the early days of america online and prodigy and the world wide web and rspw he was certainly a well known figure oh, as a matter yeah, of fact yeah. the um, what's called the the tilda bang where, you know, when, when you write something out and, you know, you want to say, did this amazing plancha and you'll put plancha in italics and capitals followed by a tilde and then an exclamation point. <laughs> Dean, I believe, was the godfather of, of that for use in oh. pro wrestling uh, reviews. Oh, did not know that. Wow. Yeah. yeah again, like I've had I had no interaction with a big fan of him. Uh, his writing, I used to love his little like reviews or whatever. And someone posted uh i forget who it was on on, on twitter uh shortly after his passing or uh, i'll try to find it uh but they posted the match in the review it was like a barry houston versus jushin thunder liger match from wcw pro in like uh 1995 uh and like it, it, it's like reading him is like writing about a mundane match is like reading like lester bangs write about a record you know just yes. like oh it, it, it's fantastic just I, I wish i could write like that about wrestling um also want to mention about about rasmussen uh our our buddy jonathan snowden did a, did a nice little tribute to him uh like maybe yes. you could post we could post a link maybe but I, i'd recommend actually, that very yeah, there was a large outpouring of tributes to him from uh yeah. th- those 
those of us on wrestling Twitter. So certainly he was well-respected, well-admired and loved. And so to uh, yeah. the friends and family of Don and Dean, we offer our condolences and we wish uh, both rest in peace. Uh, also this month, of course, our regular monthly features, including John plays Gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia this month. I learned, and we're going to kick things off with stuff. John bought me off eBay. Mm-hmm. And John, this might be a first because the things you bought me oh. on eBay are directly related to what we're covering this yeah. month on the territory. Yeah. I, uh, uh yeah. Yep. You sent me two programs from Omaha from Joe Dusick's uh, territory. One was from 1970 and one was from 1972. So we're right around 71, but not exactly in there. And there's um, each of these programs is four pages and the front is a brief article talking about the main event Uh, on the inside is quite a large number of advertisements, but also the card for the specific show. And then the back is advertisements as well. So there's really not a whole lot of meat to these programs. But I found it interesting. The program from 1970 um, is promoting the, uh, let's see, the date. Uh, it doesn't say the specific date. Uh, November 7th. November 7th in Omaha. And the main event is an AWA World Tag Team title match. Uh, Dusik would occasionally bring in uh, some of the AWA guys. I think in the 60s, he had an even stronger connection with Vern's office, but here it's less frequently, but here we have Mad Dog Vashon and Butcher Vashon against Red Bastine and Pepper Gomez. But the story on the, uh, on the front page of the program explaining why the match is happening in Omaha is interesting. They basically are saying that the Vashons wanted the title match in Chicago. Pepper and Red wanted it in Minneapolis, but the AWA chose a neutral town huh. and that being Omaha. That's kind of cool. And this is something I see every now and then in wrestling where promoters as part of the storyline or as part of yeah. building up a title match, they'll say all the local promoters in, in the region were bidding on this title match, but we got it. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Which is uh, not real, not like the site fees that, that, <laughs> cities are paying to the WWE <laughs> nowadays, but again, a unique way to make something sound important and to make yep. your local house show in, in a town, you know, seem bigger than it was. Um, also, there is a note. This was November, 1970. There's a note that the claw is coming. Ooh, is he ever? Yes. So uh, he wouldn't, he wouldn't come in until either very late 1970 or the beginning of 71, but you know, as early as uh, November 7th, they knew that the claw, Tom Andrews, was coming in. And now this program, uh, not only does it list the matches, but it has in pen, uh, someone wrote in the winners and losers. Oh, nice. And what I always wonder about this is, how do I know for a fact that this was the original, this was someone that actually was at the matches and wrote down what, what happened? And then just, uh, uh, you know, it's possible they copied and pasted it later, you know, after looking yeah. up the results online, or it's possible they just, you know, made it up. It could be, it could have been some psycho, you know, <laughs> just, uh, may, saying, you know, saying who won and lost, whether it happens or not. But a if we're to believe, if we're to believe the handwriting here, the Vashans beat Bastine and Gomez. Also on the card, a youngish Rock Rogowski, Ole Anderson, 
beat Tex McKenzie. Stan Pulaski beat Gato Gordo. And in the opener, Reggie Parks and Benny Ramirez went to a draw. Hmm. So that was 1970. And then in 1972, this program is from August 19th. And this is really towards the very end of Dusick's uh, existence as a standalone territory. Uh, by, I think, October, he's pretty much just a local promoter for Vern running Sioux Falls in Omaha. But uh, on this card, the uh, there's a double main event with Stan Pulaski versus Buddy Wolf and Cowboy Bob Ellis versus Christopher Colt. Oh, boy. And Colt has a manager here named Ronald. I assume that means Ron Dupree. Dupree, yeah. Huh. And according to the handwritten note in this one, Cowboy Bob Ellis won, but it was a bloodbath exclamation point. Oh, God. What I wouldn't give. To see Cowboy Bob Ellis against Christopher Colt. Yeah. Just bleeding all over the place. <laughs> yes. Also Cowboy on Bob this card. Hair piece. Oh. Yeah. Also on this card, it was scheduled uh, for Jerry Miller to take on Roger Kirby, but subbing for Kirby was Harley Race. Ooh. And the opener was Steve Bolas against Higo Hamaguchi, who is uh, Animal Hamaguchi. Okay. Whose daughter was one of the uh, great amateur female wrestlers in the history, I think, not only of Japan, but like of the world. Really? She was an incredibly huh. highly decorated uh, amateur wrestler mm-hmm. not too long ago. So, yeah, this was pretty cool in that it ties into the territory we are talking about. And, of course, to see 50-year-old programs... Uh, in really good condition is really neat because these are in, in good shape. And of course, reading the advertisements are really <laughs> amusing here on the back page. Uh, they are advertising sizzling hot dogs Ooh. as well as fat Franks from Wimmer's also Polish sausage, tender, crispy buns. Mm. Uh, and I guess from a company called butternut bread and their slogan was Tut, tut, nothing but butternut bread. <laughs> and kitty clover potato chips. Oh. We also, from here, we can see that the um, the wrestling program aired on Monday nights. Uh, and this would be in Omaha. Again, we don't know what happened in the rest of the territory, if they bicycled it, if they taped different shows in different markets. But um, on Monday nights, they would have TV it says live action, and live hmm. action is in quotes. I don't believe <laughs> it was live. And the reason why I, I believe that is because of something we'll discuss later when it comes to uh, the tragedy involving Alberto Torres and how the promotion handled it uh, on TV. Okay. Um, be sure to visit chartingtheterritories.com to see a uh, detailed data-driven look at Joe Dusick's All-Star Wrestling Territory in 1971. It includes a whole lot more than what we're able to talk about on this podcast. It includes profiles not only of Tom Andrews, who was, as I mentioned, the claw, but also Jerry Miller, one of so many journeymen whose career accomplishments haven't really been properly documented. Uh, And for these profiles, I enlisted the help of a real actual author to write most of the profiles. Uh, And if you like what you read, David also has, uh, David Gibb is that writer, and he also has a serialized wrestling story called Tag Team up on his website, 
aceyourcomeback.com with new chapters posted every Friday. Now, Dusik's territory was one of the smaller ones at the time. In fact, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's out of business by the end of 1972. You can see a map uh, showing these regularly run towns on the territory fact sheet on our website. The fact sheet also uh, has the average number of wrestlers working the territory at any given time during 1971, and that number is 7.2. Wow. Think about that. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, your show is going to have, you know, six to eight guys on it. Uh, As I mentioned, he is um, supplementing his cards by bringing in one or two guys from the AWA every now and then, or from central states every now and then, or he'll bring in the uh, special attractions, the women or the little persons. But by and large, his crew uh, consists of like six to seven guys. And for comparison purposes, the other territories we've looked at so far for 1971, the next lowest was Stampede with 17.2 wrestlers. (laughs) And then Amarillo had 21. Georgia had a little over 23. And Leroy McGurk had a little over 26. So it's, you know, less than half the size of Stampede, which was a also considered on the smallest side. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so because of this, uh, when we post the roster charts on our blog uh, and we list the uh, main eventers, the upper mid-carters, the mid-carters, the preliminary wrestlers, and the part-timers, there actually aren't any preliminary wrestlers. Um, <laughs> it's just a function of the way they structured their cards. <laughs> and when they brought in, you know, an outsider, they were usually in the opening matches. So they'd get the lower spot ratings as opposed to the full-timers working here. Um, But you do see a lot of part-timers, and these are guys um, like The Crusher and Red Bastine, AWA guys, or some Heart of America guys that come in periodically throughout the year, but every now and then they might come in for like a couple of two or three weeks straight. And the way I... Um, the way I have my cutoffs set off for, you know, what gets you a spot rating. If they're here in three out of a five week period of time, they're on the roster just for that one week. Hmm. So it's, it's, it's really funny the way like that, not having the prelim guys, uh, when you initially sent me the roster to review for the show, I was like, I think, Al, I think you forgot to send me the list of prelim <laughs> guys. And then after I saw the fact, I was like, oh, well, that that's just how you explained it. Yeah. There are no premium uh, guys. Yeah, these are, yeah, there really weren't. Um, also, so many with, with a small crew, many of their shows would have a tag team main event. And then the opening matches were, you know, what we call the captain's matches. And when those are on a card, I actually don't count those towards a wrestler's spot rating. Because think about it. If the main event is Pulaski and Parks versus The Claw and, you know, Ox Baker. And... Two of those guys wrestle in the opening match as a prelim. You should, you know, you shouldn't. They shouldn't be penalized for that yeah. earlier match. They're the, they're in the main event. That's the main draw. Yeah. What these captain matches, I think, are because you often see them in the smaller towns. I think that's where they run the angles to set up the main event because you know a lot of these main event tag team matches don't have a TV angle behind them. It's just mm. two top guys versus two top guys. So in these prelims. They run a pretty basic angle, uh, you know, the, the heels partner interferes um, and then the baby faces partner comes out for the save. And so this gets the crowd uh, hyped up to see the main event tag team match later. Hmm. 
Also, a lot of times they are uh, they go to a time limit draw. And I think that part of it is because they wanted to educate the crowd that 15 minute time limit isn't enough when two evenly matched wrestlers are fighting each other. It's normally it's not enough for one guy to be able to wear his opponent down. And this prepares them for the longer main events. That's something I have just created in my head as something that might have been the case. I haven't confirmed it, but you know, typically the main events are two out of three falls and the first fall usually takes a good 25, 30 minutes. So I think they're trying to educate the crowd that 15, 10, 15 minutes isn't enough. Uh, And that's why they go to draws. And so then they're not restless when the main event, the first yep. fall goes long. And of course, this allows them to then switch up the formula and have a really quick fall in the main event, you know, have the first fall only take a few minutes and catch the fans off guard. Yeah, Again, yeah, yeah. They, they always did little tricks like that so that the fans that think they knew what was going on, what was really going on, they'd say, well, wow, he scored that pin really fast. I've never seen that before. Yep. Maybe this is real. Or yeah. how in those two out of three falls main events, Every now and then, the winner, it takes two falls. They don't yep. go to a third fall. They mm-hmm. do it just enough, just enough to make the fans not, you know, not be able to yep. catch the formula. But as far as the regular crew goes, the main eventers, as measured by our spot rating statistic, on the babyface side, you have Stan Pulaski, Reggie Parks, Cowboy Bob Ellis, Billy Redcloud, and Ramon Torres. And on the heel side, you have The Claw, the great Kuzatsu, and Rock Rogowski. The Claw here, uh, as I mentioned, was Tom Andrews. Andrews had been, uh, like, you know, so many other guys have been wrestling all over the place for uh, the better part of a decade by this point in time, often under a mask. But he first started uh, building himself as The Claw the year before uh, in the Northwest. And oh, yeah. had uh, had a really nice run there. His manager was Beauregard. Mm. Initially, his mask was uh, almost like a checkerboard uh, type yeah. of design. Although he would later switch to a, uh, uh, I think a, a claw, uh, you know, one, a hand and the claw. Hold on. One of my favorite claw Beauregard stories is the one, uh, the the Easter the Easter uh, episode oh, of yes, the Portland the Wrestling. Bunny, yeah. Oh, I feel like last month we talked about, uh, you know, the the, the lawman. Uh, Writing Santa, Santa yeah, writing, no, writing, writing Santa a ticket. <laughs> writing Santa a ticket. Then Beauregard's doing this promo with the claw, and, and Beauregard, Beauregard starts cutting a promo on the Easter Bunny, <laughs> um, saying like, "All you kids out there, you're not going to get no Easter candy, no Easter eggs, because I told the claw to hide in your bushes. <laughs> when he sees the Easter Bunny, he's going to jump out and put the claw hold on on the Easter Bunny and just squeeze and squeeze and squeeze the Easter Bunny. And the way he retells the story, it's like, of course, the, the phone lines light up at the TV station. They threaten to pull the wrestling show off the air forever. So he's forced to come back out, apologize, and say he's going to keep the claw in a cage <laughs> overnight so he doesn't kill the Easter Bunny. I just love that. Poor, poor Tom Andrews, wherever he goes, he, oh. fi- he finds himself in tasteless angles. Well, we'll right? we're, we're getting to that, but like that yeah. was that's barely on the radar of the most tasteless yeah. storylines that Tom was unfortunately a part of. Um, but he, um, 
And, you know, as we see with this November 1970 program, even before he came in, they were, you know, they were clearly planning on pushing him. Um, I think within his first 90 days, he won both the tag team titles with uh, Rogowski, as well as the Midwest heavyweight title. So Dusik pushed him hard from the get go. He actually broke his leg, uh, I believe, in mid-March, mid to late March. They he had already lost the tag team titles. They lost them back to uh, Pulaski and Parks, I believe. But he was still the Midwest Heavyweight title. They actually um, did not take the title away from him uh, while mm-hmm. he recovered. And they used him on shows as a manager for Rogowski and the heel they brought in uh, to, to sort of fill his role temporarily, Ox Baker. Um, yeah. and, and when, you know, Claw gets back into action, uh, starts teaming with Rogowski and Baker, Rogowski is finishing up and Baker and the Claw become uh, buddies in a semi-regular tag team. And this leads us to Sunday, June 13th in the town of Verdigra, Nebraska, or Verdigre, Nebraska, V-E-R-D-I-G-R-E, when the Claw and Ox Baker face Cowboy Bob Ellis and Alberto Torres. Mm. And this sadly would be the last match in the career of Alberto. Alberto was the youngest of three wrestling Torres brothers. Uh, Enrique was the biggest star of the three, but all of them, Enrique, Alberto, and Ramon, forged out nice careers in the ring. Mm-hmm. Alberto and Ramon worked as a tag team far more frequently than any other combination, but there were times when the team was Enrique and Alberto, and there were times when it was Enrique and Ramon, but it was more often than not Alberto and Ramon. Now, Enrique retired in 1968. So as we get into the early 70s, there were only two wrestling Torres brothers. Um, Prior to coming to Nebraska, Alberto had spent some time teaming with Ramon in Georgia, as well as for Leroy McGurk, uh, and they held uh, had several title runs in those two territories. But in the beginning of 1971, Ramon uh, was wrestling in Amarillo, while Alberto was working for Jim Crockett. Alberto finishes up in the Carolinas at the end of March to come to Nebraska, while Ramon left Amarillo in mid-May and went to wrestle for McGurk. Now, there's not a whole lot of footage on Alberto, but John, you found a couple of matches uh, on the YouTube that you feel are worth our our listeners' time. Uh, of course, we will put these up as a playlist on our YouTube channel to make it easy for you to check it out. But John, tell us about these two matches you found involving Alberto Torres. Yeah, they're both very, very sort of brief 10-minute TV matches, uh, I believe both from the Olympic Auditorium. Uh, the first one is a singles uh, versus the great John L. Uh, I think this is from September 23rd, 1959. My favorite thing about this match, honestly, is the crowd uh, and how you can hear them very clearly cheering Torres and booing and insulting both John L. and the ref. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's just basic back and forth TV match. Um, Alberta has a cool sort of move where he sort of holds the guy's arm has him in sort of like a half headlock kind of thing, gives him a knee lift. I don't know. It's almost like a reminding me sort of of like, you know, Jake Roberts does like the, uh, was that that short arm clothesline thing there? Yeah. Sort of reminding me like, like a, a knee lift version of that. 
which is really cool. Um, and his finisher is a, is a, is a, uh, the flying head scissor, which looks great because these guys barely leave their feet for this entire match, except for like, you know, stat mares and stuff. So when he goes over this flying head scissor, the crowd is super into it. Um, you know, you, you talked a few minutes ago about, you know, conditioning fans and like the, the people talk about fans being re, needed to be reconditioned to like different styles of wrestling, a more basic style of wrestling. For me, give me 10 minutes of mat wrestling and I will I will pop and clap and stand up out of my chair for a well-executed flying head scissor, which is what I did watching this match. Uh, next match, tag match, uh, Alberto and Ramon versus Art Mahalik, Art Boom Boom Mahalik. Boom Boom, yeah. Gotta, gotta, <laughs> you can't forget the Boom Boom. <laughs> no Boom Boom. And uh, Mike Sharp, also from the Olympic. I think this is from July 8th, 1964. Mahalik and Sharp are such like a good, no-frills, early... 60 wrestling heel team with a double teaming and the dice pulling just like just perfect. Uh, Ramon also does a little cool knee lift that his brother does. Uh, Ramon also has a pretty, pretty nice drop kick for, for 1964 as well. Um, again, this match is not so much anything that happens in the ring. That's all that exciting. I think the Torres brothers win with like a spinning toe hold. Uh, that's, that's not what's impressive. It's just like how, how much the crowd loves the the Torres brothers. They go they go from a volume of one to ten immediately as soon as they start to start to fire up. Um, it's in, in reading about them, it, it's it's so impressive. Uh, especially, is it safe to say like their biggest collective run was Georgia? Is that a safe bet? Um, as, for Alberto and Ramon, I think I yeah. think that's reasonable. Yeah. Yes, Enrique, you probably 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 go with you know California West yeah. Coast, but like it's just amazing how behind them, you know, you talk like and like years ago we talked about Len Rossi from Utica, New York, being adopted by the Memphis wrestling fans. Right, and the same deal here with the Torres brothers, but even more so and more surprising. These are like Mexican American dudes getting over huge in Georgia in the late '60s, and I think it was. In the, I was looking at the 2020 census, Al, uh, mm-hmm. and in 2020, 10.5 percent of Georgia's population was Hispanic slash Latino. That's 2020. So think about 1966. <laughs> what it was, well, and that's yeah, that's interesting because a few years later, El Mongol became a babyface in Georgia and and was a top you know main event babyface guy for a few years. Yeah, in Georgia as well. As best I can tell, Torres went into the match in uh, Nebraska on June 13th with a pre-existing uh, either condition or injury, and at some point during the match. It was uh, exacerbated. Uh, perhaps someone landed on him a little, you know, a little snugger than normal. But it's believed he suffered he suffered a ruptured pancreas and/or internal bleeding and was hospitalized after the match. So that match was on a Sunday, June thirteenth. He passed away a few days later on Thursday. Hmm. Here's the kicker. Remember, we said the TV aired on Mondays. Yeah. At some point. After the injury, but before Torres passed away, an interview was taped with The Claw, basically taking credit for putting Torres in the hospital and cackling about it. In Omaha, which was their number one market, according to a, um, a post I read from a fan on Wrestling Classics, 
who was uh, grew up in, in Omaha in the uh, early 70s and who would have been 12 years old at this time, that interview didn't air till after Torres had passed away. Oh, God. <laughs> so, uh, again, it's very possible he was seeing, uh, you know, he was seeing a bicycle version of the tape a week later. Um, but again, still, they that means they wouldn't have had the quality control to to erase it. So the internet, that, and that's why I say the Monday TV probably wasn't live because if the injury happened on a Sunday, the TV that Monday would have been the time when Torres was still in the hospital and still alive. If the interview with the claw taking credit for it didn't air till after that, that means it had to have been taped before he died yep. and aired after he died. So that's why I, I don't think the TV was live on Mondays, but it was, uh, you know, it was on a delay. Yeah. But yeah. So, and it's funny because, you know, when I, when I first read about Ox Baker, um, you know, he was always given quote unquote credit for not only Gunkel, but also Torres. Mm. And that didn't become a thing till after Gunkel. This is when promoters said, oh, well, now if we do this Taurus thing, too, we can really build him up as a quote-unquote killer. But yep. in the territory at the time it happened, the heat was on the claw, which, again, like we said, Jusek clearly you know, was, wanted to push this guy as a super-duper top star. So now Torres passed away. What does a wrestling promotion do? Try and capitalize on it. Of course. So they brought in Ramon Torres. And this is interesting because Ramon, as I mentioned, was full-time for McGurk. They actually worked out a timeshare deal where he would work typically Monday through Thursday uh, in Oklahoma and Louisiana and oh. then fly up to work uh, the bigger cities in Dusick Circuit, which were Omaha, Lincoln, and Sioux Falls were the three biggest markets. So he typically work a Friday and or a Saturday and then fly back to Oklahoma and work Monday through Thursday down there. This went on for a couple of months and they, so they build up to Ramon uh, getting a title shot at the claw in Omaha. So not only is he trying to avenge the death of his brother, but he also has a chance to win the, uh, the heavyweight title. Hmm. And this show, uh, the first match between the two, drew 5,500 fans in Omaha, which was more than double what the town had been averaging in the, in the year up to that point in time. So as tasteless as it may have been, what, what did Jerry Jarrett say? What did he have posted on his wall, John? Personal issues draw money. And it doesn't get more personal and then coming to, you know, find that, you know, get revenge on the guy that killed your brother. No, no, it doesn't. Wow. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so in that match, uh, Ramon lost the final fall by disqualification after hitting the claw with a stool, which again, you know, makes all the sense in the world and in storyline. He got, you know, yep. carried away and got disqualified. Yep. So it set up a rematch two weeks later, which uh, drew another really big crowd of over 4,000. And Ramon not won that match. And I believe they added the uh, a stipulation that it was uh title versus you know title versus mask. Ah. If not, somehow, some way, Claw was unmasked after the match, regardless. So he lost the match, he lost the title, and he lost his mask, and he revealed his identity afterwards, and was soon finish up his run for the territory. 
Yeah. Now, Torres only held the title for about a month, maybe maybe five or six weeks. Um, and this is another thing you can see on our website, chartingtheterritories.com, when we track the title histories. Like I said, I don't keep track of exact dates, but I do look at the approximate length of each title reign, and I separate it by babyface champions and heel champions. And with many territories, you can see a distinct pattern in which side holds titles longer. And in this territory, in the early 70s, the heels held the uh, the singles title far longer on average than the baby faces. Hmm. Claw had a several-month run. Torres has a little over a month run. And then when he loses it to the great Kuzatsu, Kuzatsu, I think, holds it for the rest of the year or maybe loses it in the very final week of 71. But this brings up an interesting point about Ramon Torres, because he had two title reigns in 1971, this one and the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title that he won in Monroe, Louisiana, which we talked about earlier this year when we covered McGurk's territory. And that one, he was not originally advertised for the title match. It was supposed to be champion Rip Kirby against Danny Hodge. And Hodge was reportedly in a car accident on the way to the show, and Torres took his place and won the title. So this means that both of Ramon's title (laughs) reigns in 1971 were not part of the, a, a, some long-term thought out, you know, plan. That being said, I'm not 100% convinced that Danny Hodge was actually in a car accident. This, this particular one, this is not the 1976 one that ended his career, which was very real. This was not the 1966 one that was very real. There's just uh, there's just a small part of me that, you know, says, you know, wrestling is wrestling. And, and perhaps this was an angle uh, done to cover up for some other reason that Hodge was going to be away for hmm. a couple of months because he wasn't wrestling anywhere for a couple of months. Um, and a way to, you know, do uh, again, spice things up, give, yeah. give fans something that they weren't expecting. Huh. So I have no evidence for this. Um, and I, I am probably wrong, but I, like I said, I don't, I don't, I will not swear in a Bible that Hodge was in a car accident on the way to the show in Monroe in 1971. Um, you never know. Um, I won, you know, at one point, several years earlier, Hodge took a few months absence, uh, due to, uh, contracting hepatitis. Yeah. And at the time it was reported as such. Uh, when he came back, they actually said in programs and in articles, um, coming back after a battle with hepatitis. Um, so again, there's a small part of me that says maybe, just maybe, that was an angle. And and they did plan for Torres to win the title. Now, they probably would have given Alberto a run with the Midwest heavyweight title. Um, he was certainly being built up for it. Um, when we talked about our spot ratings, um, in the main adventures, we mentioned Ramon, but not Alberto. Alberto was an upper mid carder. His spot rating ended up being a 0.70. But when you understand that his push stopped because of his untimely passing, had he not passed away, he was starting to work in the main events and getting matches against the claw, and he likely would have been higher up in the yeah. ratings. And, and so, in a way, Ramon sort of took his spot. Yeah, and it sort of looks like that too. If you look at the claw, the way even even yeah, the way the claw, claw was finishing up through guys, he was yeah. yeah, and he he went through Pulaski, he went through and they Bob Ellis, 
Dr. Big Bill Miller, Red Bastion, et cetera. So it seems like, yeah. Alberto was next in line, whether he would have won the title or just been another notch on, on, uh, you know, on the chalkboard for the claw. We don't know. Given that claw left the territory shortly after he lost to Ramon, it is possible that the timing would have worked out that, you know, whoever the top babyface was at the time the claw was finishing up, you know, was going to get the title and it might have been Alberto. So that's a, a little bit of wrestling trivia regarding Ramon Torres and his 1971 title runs. But here's some more trivia, courtesy of the Dean of Professional Wrestling, Gordon Soley. It's time for John Plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia. Now, one note before we begin. Last month, one of the questions uh, was what football team drafted Blackjack Mulligan? Uh, My friend and fellow wrestling historian, Bo James, reached out to me after that episode aired to say that Blackjack had not been drafted. Um, So that was probably something that wrestling promoters, you know, use as part of his fake resume and it made its way into this game. So while you got that one wrong, you shouldn't have because it wasn't a real thing. We should work out a scoring system for answers that are wrong in the game. But right in real but life. Right in like real life. Yeah, well, that, that's an idea. Well, like I said, when we get things wrong, we always try and correct ourselves. So here you got you were given credit for getting something wrong, but it wasn't your fault. It's because the question was wrong. Now, Blackjack at one point was on the preseason roster for the New York Jets. Mm-hmm. John, who do you think he met while he was uh, on the Jets roster? Would that have been Wahoo McDaniel? That would have been Wahoo McDaniel. And so that's Boy. that's likely where the connection was. I believe that is where the connection was for Blackjack to get into wrestling. But he also had tryouts with the Saints and Broncos later. Hmm. Um, I did a little bit of research. There are some websites that list all the draft picks, you know, dating back to the 60s. I could not find a listing for a Bob Wyndham hmm. or uh, anything remotely, you know, related to uh, Mulligan's real name. So... Yeah, I think this was just a thing where wrestling promoters decided to claim he was drafted and it made its way into Gordon Soley's championship wrestling <laughs> trivia. So you ready, John? I'm ready. I'm ready, baby. All right. All right. So remember, this game came out in the mid 80s, mid or maybe even 87 or so. Yep. So question one, what promoter was voted best scientific wrestler of the last 25 years by the wrestling media? What promoter was voted best scientific wrestler of the last 25 years? I would have to go with Vern Gagne. Yeah, I think I gave you a really good hint the way I emphasize certain words. But yes, you are <laughs> correct. Vern Gagne. That's Thank fine. you for the hint. Yeah. I, I, I was going to go with Chris Colt, but. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question number two. Which wrestler had his own talk show in Memphis? Jerry Lawler. The that Jerry is Lawler. correct. Okay. We don't count the the Bill and Buddy show. <laughs> oh, I don't, yeah, that would have been a good. Yeah. 
I, 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 if you had said that, I would have considered it correct. Well, they yeah. did, their talk show was in the Memphis TV show as opposed to a separate television program. Like the Kareem Muhammad show. Also. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> All right, two for two. Which two wrestlers combined to form the tag team, the Blade Runners? That is the future Sting and the future Ultimate Warrior, Jim Hellwig and Steve Borden. That is correct. They have here Sting and Rock. I wasn't concerned uh, you know, if, with whether you got Rock's name right. So you got it right. That's that's thank you for completely thank right. Thank you for giving me that one. No, well, well, because your answer is correct. Jim Hellwig was one of the two wrestlers that was in the tag team of the Blade Runners. Yeah, because wasn't wasn't it Sting and Blade, and then it was changed to Sting and Rock? Yeah, I don't so, remember. What, yeah, so I, I, you know, had you said Blade, I wouldn't have said no. It's Rock. You got it wrong. So you're three for three. Fourth one is true or false. True or false. Dory Funk Jr. defeated Gene Kaniski for the NWA World Heavyweight Title by using the Figure Four Deathlock. Figure four. I'm, I'm going to go false. Is that your final answer? It is my final answer, yes. You are correct. First off, I don't know what a figure four death lock is. Neither Second, do I. if the question had said figure four leg lock, John, what would your answer have been? I still would have gone false. I would go with a spinning toehold. You think. are correct. He, uh, cool. Gene Kaniski literally said uncle. Maybe, not literally, but he, he, <laughs> he verbally... Uh, conceded the match while in the spinning toehold. I literally just watched it uh, earlier this morning just to be sure. <laughs> well, thanks for doing that. Yeah, a little extra research. Going, yeah. going the extra step. But I don't know what the figure four death lock is. I'm kind of curious now if that's a thing or if this is just yet another example of Gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia game having mistakes yeah. in it. Oh, yeah, good good recovery, because you were doing great. And then uh, last month you slipped. Of course, at least one of the questions was not your fault, but you're back <laughs> to perfection. So good job, John Boucher. So now going back to the Dusix territory, as I mentioned, Alberto Torres came in as an upper mid-carder uh, when we calculated the average spot ratings for the year. And we also explained why. But other upper mid-carders were on the babyface side, Jerry Miller and Johnny Valentine Jr., who is Greg Valentine. And on the heel side, Ox Baker, Blackjack Daniels, and Benny Ramirez. And Ox, again, another one who I'm sort of surprised he wasn't uh, a main eventer. He came in sort of just below the mark. A lot of times when wrestlers come in during the year, the several weeks they spend getting pushed up the cards sort of affects their average spot rating for the year hmm. whereas guys like Pulaski and Parks who uh, and Rogowski who had been there uh, when the year started they were already you know made guys their, their pushes happened earlier you know before 1971 started so that's sort of why it happens now but one of those wrestlers we mentioned was Benny Ramirez who is best known for being the mummy or a mummy or some mummy, <laughs> somebody's mummy, for many years. But he also wrestled as Benny Ramirez for, for quite some time. Now, early in his career, he adopted the uh, the, the mummy gimmick. Uh, his earliest documented matches were in East Texas in 1962. It appears he was unmasked, or I guess unwrapped, in some cities in East Texas, but not all. Uh, by the end of 1962... 
In Dallas, Corpus Christi, and Houston, he is billed as Benny Ramirez. And in the other cities, he's still billed as the mummy. Hmm. Um, you mentioned, uh, you showed me a clipping in, in Tyler, Texas in 1963, he was being billed as the mummy, comma, Benny Ramirez. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting to, to figure out if it was a legitimate unmasking or if they had some other explanation or if they, you know, just said, you know, maybe someone had to say, look, he's not really a mummy. His name is Benny Ramirez, <laughs> but just go along with it and we're going to call him the mummy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, but, uh, you know, showing how the different towns were different. That's something that we've talked about often on this podcast. Uh, when we covered West Texas, we talked about how, uh, Don Slatton and Gory Guerrero in particular had uh, a good amount of leeway in how they booked and ran their towns. And East Texas is even more so. In fact, it wouldn't be wrong to say that the East Texas territory was three separate territories, all using the same, mostly the same crew. You have Fritz in Dallas and Fort Worth. You have Bosch in Houston. And you have Joe Blanchard in San Antonio and Austin and mm. a couple other towns. And they're all using the same core group of guys. Of course, Bosch is also bringing in a handful of outside guys as well. But they're not always in the same role. Uh, there's a time when uh, Johnny Valentine is a babyface, I think, for Blanchard and a heel everywhere else. There's a time uh, when I think Thunderbolt Patterson turns heel in some places, in some parts of that territory, but not all of them. Also, the title histories are different for Blanchard's towns than they are for Fritz's towns. They're, they have the same names for the titles, the American heavyweight title and the Texas heavyweight title, and uh, I think the Texas tag team titles. But the lineage for Blanchard's towns is completely different than it is for Fritz's towns. Oh, wow. Hmm. That's just, you know, one of those things that, that, you know, make, makes trying to document wrestling facts <laughs> difficult because like I said, in each town in one territory, things could be very different. We've talked about the Greg Valentine backland, uh, title match where the title oh, was yeah. held up in the garden yep. and it was not acknowledged in the rest of the territory. What I wonder though, is because obviously the Coliseum and, uh, New Jersey, were run off of the same TV station. So I, you know, I would assume they would have to have had the local promos for the garden there as well. So I need to look up and see if, if there were backland title defenses in the Coliseum or in uh, Northern New Jersey huh. during, in between the two garden matches. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, Benny Ramirez stopped using the mummy gimmick uh, for good in early 1971, when he was wrestling in Heart of America, um, he wrestled a handful of matches as the Mummy, and then uh, switches back to Benny Ramirez, and stays uh, that way for the rest of his career, with the exception of one to tour of Japan, where I believe he was billed as the Killer, and I'm assuming he was under a mask. But at the time, he started wrestling uh, as Benny Ramirez in Kansas City. I believe that's also the time he moved permanently to the Kansas city area. It looks like that. Cause, uh, you don't really see him aside from the tours in Japan, uh, you know, working that much. Yeah, he's, not, he's not working in Texas or anywhere. You know, just, there's, yeah, there's a handful of tours for Japan. And then between 71 and 78, he's got one or two short runs in stampede and one in Portland. 
but the rest of the time he's in Kansas City regularly. Now, the guys in Kansas City would often, as we mentioned earlier, would sometimes work for Dusik, sometimes get booked for the AWA, um, and of course, sometimes they would get booked for uh, in St. Louis for Mushnick. Uh, when he would run his shows in St. Louis once every two to three weeks. So yeah. you know, he's working other places very close by to Kansas City, but he's not the nomad that most wrestlers are for their careers. Um, and Benny actually, post-wrestling, worked at uh, he worked for TWA at the mm-hmm. Kansas City Overhaul Base. Yep. So, John, what, what is the Kansas City Overhaul Base? It was at the, at the time, it was actually known as the TWA overhaul plant, uh, located right next to the, the Kansas City International Airport. Um, now the facility, I think American Airlines acquired it after the TWA bankruptcy, and they were there for about 10 years. Now other companies uh, lease it out for manufacturing, and other airlines lease out the hangars, mm-hmm. but during its heyday, TWA had something like five or six thousand employers working there, just working on the working on the planes. And so, the and so they were doing uh, service and maintenance and repairs on yep. TWA's fleet. Yep, 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 yep. So that that that's a pretty good job. That that's a really nice job for a, a strong, big, thriving company. You know, in I would guess at the time, Kansas City would have been you know one of TWA's hubs. Yeah. Um, for them to you know have th- this this base right there, so he probably got really good benefits as well. And I, also, of course, you know when you work for an airline, you get uh, you often get free flights. Oh yes, 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 yes. Which can be good, but every once in a blue moon, sadly, oh. yeah, it could be bad. Uh, and yep. this brings us to the um, the passing of Benny Ramirez. And John, right. I didn't know about this until you sent me uh, your materials. While we were prepping for this podcast, so yeah. this is this is new to me. But Benny passed away in a plane crash in 1995. Um, Benny, his wife, and their daughter, who on the day of this plane crash, she turned 20. It was her birthday. Birthday, yeah, yep. Uh, they flew first from Kansas City to Miami, and then caught a connecting flight to Columbia. Now, originally. Benny was not going to be on the same flight as his wife and daughter. He was going to catch up with them a day or two later. But uh, according to his daughter, he ended up working late the the two nights prior and surprising uh, his wife and daughter as he's driving them to the airport by saying, guess what? I'm coming with you. Yeah. Huh. Um, I was reading the story about the plane crash, and it's really there's a whole lot of weird things going on. Basically, oh. the airport they're flying into in Columbia did not have radar at the time as the result of an attack on the airport by a terrorist group three years earlier. Yes, never replaced. That hadn't yes. been replaced. Um, no. Also, their their flight from Miami to Columbia, the flight they got on, they were originally on standby yep. and got on. Which, And when you think about it, this was in December. This was, I believe, December 20th, 1995. So this is people you know, flying for the Christmas holidays mm-hmm. where I would assume the odds of getting a seat when you're on standby are really, really low. Yeah. Because most people, you know, they have no choice. They're going to see their family. It's not, it's not leisure travel. Yeah. But they got on the flight. Um, at one point, uh, the the mother was trying to set the daughter up with a male <laughs> passenger that was yeah. sitting in their row. Yeah. Um, 
the daughter was dating, had just started dating someone. So, uh, told, you know, tried to Iggy, Iggy, the mom, Hey, stop, stop. Yeah, she yeah. ends up uh, moving a row back to sit next to her dad. Just, you know, cause she was being embarrassed by her mom as, as all, you know, 19 turned 20 year olds often yeah. are, but because the radar, uh, didn't exist at the airport, the pilots, uh, chose to manually enter guidance instructions and coordinates into the plane's autopilot system. And a series of small errors um, basically led to the plane going in the wrong direction and heading straight for a mountain. Mm -hmm. Um, By the time the pilots realized, you know, this, uh, I think they said they only had 12 seconds between when they, you know, when they saw the alarms that they were about to hit a mountain and when they actually hit and the pilot was unable to, um, change the plane's trajectory in time. Um, yeah. All oh. eight crew members and 151 out of 155 passengers died in the crash. Yeah. Four survivors, one of whom was Benny's daughter, and another of whom was the young gentleman her mom had been trying to set her up with. Yeah. <laughs> now, Seth, and a dog. And, one and a dog. dog. One dog survived, and the dog was renamed uh, Miagre. Yeah. Which I think is uh, which means miracle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, what would be a great story would be if the two of them, you know, down the road fell in love and got married. That's not the case. As a matter of fact, the gentleman that um, the daughter Mercedes had been dating, uh, they ended up getting married. As a matter of fact, he proposed to her on the one year anniversary of the crash, which again, also keep in mind, was you know her next birthday as a way of giving her another happy memory of that date to outweigh the sad memory of both her parents passing away uh, on that plane crash. Yeah. I, I don't really know if any of this qualifies as a, as a silver lining, but she has really, or at the writing of this time of the writing of this article seems to have managed to parlay this truly, truly awful, horrific life altering experience into a positive one. Uh, by relieving relieving it at least once a week as part of a career as a motivational speaker, where she makes a ton of money, it looks like. Yeah, she was working. This was an article. We'll post a link to this on Twitter. Um, I, the article, I believe, was from 2007. Uh, so at least as of 15 years ago, she was a motivational speaker. And she was talking about her experiences and how she was able to cope with this. And her, her primary message in these uh, speeches was... Very simple. Appreciate life. Mm-hmm. And that's something we all should do. John, this has been a very depressing episode. We started out talking about <laughs> t- yeah, Don Luce and Dean Rasmussen. From there, we went to Alberto Torres. And now we've got Benny Ramirez. But this, this is, a, you know, I think I really do think this, this, this article, read the, we'll post this article about his daughter. And I think it does make a, you know... I, you know, I'm not a big fan of like the, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps type motivation. I don't think that works. I find it to be more of a demotivator, but I'm a sucker for this type of stuff. Like, and it, I think she branded it as a return on investment living. And, yeah. and I don't want to go, I don't want to go on some like DVP type rant or anything, but this is like the stuff he always talks about, like bad stuff happening is going to happen. It's inevitable. Bad stuff's always, always going to happen. But how you, your reaction to that negative stuff is important because you have control over that. And Benny's daughter, I think Mercedes, I think is a perfect, perfect example of that. Like how to take this horrific thing and turn it into a, a positive, which and, is and uh, how to use your personal life experiences and turn it into a career. And, you know, and this is something we all, like I said, death and taxes are inevitable. 
<laughs> bad things are going to happen. And, and to, to hear someone who lived through an experience that, in all, like, wh- however depressed you are about whatever's going on in your life, what happened to Mercedes on her birthday, oh, God. when she's on her 20th birthday, is, you know, multitudes worse than whatever you're going through. So to hear how she was able to cope with it, accept it, and, and move on with her life, uh, you know, hopefully inspired a lot of people that attended her speeches. She said she would speak at like uh, chamber of commerce events and, and, and things like that. So, you know, good for her yeah. um, to, to do that. And yeah, and this is a, yeah, I'm now, now I'm depressed. Uh, we've been talking about death. <laughs> so let's have a, let's, let's uh, add a fun little story. Okay. Uh, let's, uh, well, not add, let's, uh, we're going to talk about, um, some wrestlers lower on the card. Like we said, no one was considered a preliminary wrestler based on our spot ratings, but we have a few wrestlers that were considered mid-carders. On the heel side, you have Ali Ben Khan, who is Jack Armstrong. We talked about him last month when we were talking about uh, the movie Body Slam. Oh, uh, yeah. Also, Tretch Phillips is here as a heel. Uh, on the babyface side, you have Mr. Clean, who is uh, Ernie Brute Bemis. Tony Russo, George Gulavis, and Jack Pesek. Now, Jack was a second-generation wrestler. His father, John Pesek, was one of the, you know, most notable, significant, notorious hookers and shooters in the history of professional wrestling. Um, For most of his career, he was the guy that promoters would would bring in to teach a lesson to... uh, Guys from upstart promotions uh, across town or, you know, guys that were getting too big for their britches. But at one point in 1926, he uh, got a little carried away in a match with Joe Stetcher. So, John, this this area, this era of wrestling is far more your uh, repertoire, far more in your repertoire than mine. So explain to our listeners a little bit what happened uh, with uh, John Pesek and Joe Stetcher. Yeah, the, if I can back up a little sure. bit yeah. on the on the on the old Nebraska Tiger Man here. He from all I've read about this guy over the years, he's one of yeah, people have you know top twenty-five all-time lists by the serious wrestling historians. But beyond that, he's probably one of the top ten of most frighteningly dangerous guys I've read about from this era. era. So on the on the Haku slash Ming scale, is he above that? I think he's more, he's scarier to me. Okay. Um, that's, that, and that's, man, that's, that's high. Was, that's high. Like a sh- praise. The shooter and the hookers, they're in their own class, but especially terrifying to me is a hooker who likes to hurt people. And you know, I'm not talking about Eileen Warnoff. I'm talking about, you know, <laughs> guys like this, like, and, 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 you know, he's so interesting. He's one of those guys who viewed wrestling as a shoot who was said to have strongly disliked the way wrestling was swinging towards, you know, the, the worked nature, but he nonetheless ends up working as a policeman for among other promoters, the gold dust trio. And it's, I don't, the importance of someone like that in a promotion is tough to grasp a hundred years later, but back then you would have, like you said, constantly outsiders, other shooters claiming that wrestling was fake. Strangler Lewis was a phony, so on and so forth. So it made sense for you know, not that Strangler Lewis was scared of these guys. It was just not good business sense for him to take on all these random challengers. The risk right. greatly outweighed the reward, not just in terms of injury, 
you could have a, a crooked referee or someone in the athletic commission on the take or on the getting money on that. The promotion couldn't risk him being put in those situations. That's where someone like John Pesek comes in handy because he seemed to not only enjoy winning, he seemed to legitimately enjoy hurting people and did not need much convincing to do so. He wasn't a big dude, like maybe six feet, 185. But like you're talking about Joe Stetcher, he had like a a double wrist lock that he would use both as a, a submission as well as using it as a, as a pinning combination along with a with a head scissors. And that's that's if you're lucky when he wants to wrestle. With Stutch Stetcher, he put he shot on him with the with the wrist lock. Stetcher was a guy who I think he was a trainer, a, for, a former uh, ne- a fellow Nebraskan who was a former training partner. They you know like uh, when Pacek was coming up, he trained with him. So he's just like trying to break this guy's arm that is, you know, and they had worked, they had had two matches prior to this one where yeah. they, they got along fine. Nothing, yeah. nothing was wrong. Uh, but for some reason, this third match, uh, yeah. John decides yeah. to, and, and so from what I read, he legitimately put Stetcher in a wrist lock and Stetcher had no choice, but to submit, but a quick thinking referee disqualified Pesek saying he saw him use an elite, an illegal hold. Yeah. But and, and, but it's like and all and from what I've read about Stetcher after that, like even though he won the match, uh, Pesek had taken off. Like I think, he, I think he just went to the locker room, and took off. But Stetcher was like said to have like like cried just because he was so disappointed in himself and like whatever physical damage that he had done to his body, like the emotional really like affected him emotionally. Hmm. Um, and like and, like and if he's wrestling with you, like consider yourself lucky. Um, cause if you wanted to teach you a lesson in the ring, you're just done. Like headbutts, punches, eye gouges. There's another match, the, the Serbian guy, uh, Marine Plastina. This guy trained by farmer Burns, right? Mm-hmm. And him and his manager are going all over the country saying how all the top stars are fake talking smack on the Sandow, Lewis Mont, uh, you know, guys. So they decide to book him in a shooting match with Pesek. uh, stipulation being that if Plastina won, he get more bounced with the other top stars of the era on his own terms. Uh, the match was like a huge deal, like Sandow, Lewis, Tom Jenkins, Dr. Benjamin Roller are all in attendance. Um, it does not go well for Placina at all. Uh, like he's headbutting, punching, eye gouging. A newspaper is reported, you know, people charging the ring about wow. to riot as Placina was heard crying, please, God, don't kill me. <laughs> um, uh, and this led to uh, Pesek being the band from the state of New York for life, you know, for life. Wow. But that sent a message to not only Plastina, his manager, uh, you know, that, and that led that, that match there and him shooting on him was what led to him getting that role as the policeman for Sandow's group. Mm-hmm. Um, and naturally after a few years of this, he gets tired of taking orders <laughs> and goes out on his own touring New Zealand, Australia, working independence in the Midwest. This is an interesting, it's not a, not a this month I learned, but this is something I learned. Not only was he a first ballot wrestling observer Hall of Famer, he's also a member of the Greyhound Racing Hall of Fame. Really? Uh, yeah. Huh. And this was something that he, he took up in his time away from the, the wrestling limelight when he was, I guess, he was working in the Midwest for those guys. Uh, two of his dogs are actually in that, 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 that Greyhound Racing Hall of Fame as well. And one of them named uh, Just Andrew. I wonder if that's an homage to uh, uh, what's her name from uh, *Romancing the Stone*. Uh, 
Just Andrew was inducted in 1975, and at the time, his pedigree was in 95% of all Greyhound stock in the United States. So hmm. a wild, wild thing to think about and a crazy footnote to a, the life of a crazy man. Yeah. So his son, Jack, had been a mainstay of the Nebraska Territory for over 20 years. He actually had started in Nebraska even before Joe Dusick took over the territory in 1957. Uh, from 1949 forward, Jack spent at least part of every calendar year wrestling in Nebraska. And most of those years, he spent most of the most of the year in Nebraska. But that streak would come to an end in uh, July of 1971. Hmm. And the incident that led to the end of that streak is mentioned in a letter that Jack Pasek wrote to New Zealand wrestling historian Dave Cameron. And that letter was in turn given to Steve Ogilvy, another wrestling historian, who uh, emailed me a copy when uh, when he found out we were covering Nebraska uh, this month. He said, I have a letter you need to see. Um, <laughs> do we ever? He told me he has never posted this one publicly. Uh, so what we're going to do shortly after this podcast comes out, Steve is going to post a copy of this letter on Twitter. But it's a letter that Jack wrote to Dave Cameron, um, before we get to the really juicy part, Jack did write something about Alberto Torres's death. Uh, and this might add, uh, you know, a weird wrinkle to the question, you know, did Ox Baker really kill Alberto Torres? Um, because according to Jack, what he wrote, he wrote, Ox Baker fell on him and ruptured his pancreas or something. He died of internal bleeding. So regardless of whether Alberto had, you know, uh, pre-existing injury or condition going into the match. If, you know, something Baker did during the match caused, you know, the ruptured pancreas, which led to Alberto dying in a way Ox, you know, may have been responsible for the death of Alberto. Hmm. Um, the way, the way this all reads, if it hadn't happened, then it would, it would have happened soon. Uh, it's one of those, you know, like, you know, like if you have a, you know, a brain aneurysm or something, you're literally a ticking time bomb. Yeah. It seems that was the case here. But if you want to answer the question, did Ox Baker, you know, kill Alberto Torres? There's at least an asterisk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Involving it. And, and the same thing with Gunkel. You know, no, no, the heart punch, you know, didn't kill uh, Gunkel. But literally the you know the punch you know the way he threw the punch led to uh you know embolism or whatever right right so you know he did in a way but that's not the interesting part no the no, following paragraph <laughs> jack writes and again remember so he had been wrestling for in nebraska for every year for uh you know 22 years um had been working for Joe Dusek for much of that time, but here we go. Jack writes, I had a big fight in dressing room with the promoter Joe Dusek the last show I had here. I punched his head out of shape and so won't be wrestling around here anymore. Sorry, so sorry, fellas. I punched oh. his head out of shape and so won't be wrestling around here. No, anymore. he won't. No, he won't. Okay. Uh, he continues. It was all over him preventing my son from being ring announcer. Really a silly thing, but he has been giving it to me for years. 
Jack then talked about being canceled off a show in Ravenna, Nebraska, which is where both he and his father were born. The mm. show, based on what, what's in this letter, it, this was seems to have been a fair show, and that um, John Pasek was the parade marshal. Um, you know, for the, for the fair or, you know, uh, for whatever special events were going on the day of the wrestling show. And the, um, the fair committee wanted Jack to help his father, who at this time would have been about 75 years old, into the ring for a big presentation. So Jack was upset that he probably wouldn't be able to do that because he's now not booked on the show. So he then goes on to write, I would like to stay away, but I can't let that jerk run me out of my own town. Mm. So, of course, I we have no info about this show, uh, you know, what happened or anything like that. But I wonder if uh, Jack, you know, made his presence known during Joe Dusick's fair show in Ravenna, Nebraska, mm. that uh, he had been underbooked from for punching Joe's head out of shape. Or I wonder if he just stood like off the side at the fair right. show on a trampoline, jumping up and down. <laughs> And complaining that he's he ain't booked. Yeah. Um, he would uh, work occasionally for the AWA uh, during the remainder of the summer and then went on a tour of Japan. And he actually mentioned the tour of Japan in the letter to Cameron, saying that he was looking forward to it, that it was going to be his first ever tour of Japan. And I think he just mentioned he got uh, whatever inoculation uh, he needed to uh, to be able to travel internationally, that he had just take care of that. Smallpox, baby. Smallpox, baby. <laughs> so, yeah, I punched his head out of... I love that Oh, line. God. I mean, too. I had to put myself on mute for about three and a half minutes. <laughs> Jesus. So, that, yeah, so uh, that, that's oh. a, a fun little story uh, about the things that we love to hear uh, about the pro wrestling of old. Of course, meanwhile, you know, nowadays... Um, the locker, you know, the locker room fights turn into such a big deal that CM Punk hasn't been seen, you know, in AEW in months because of, yeah. you know, that that fight. Although apparently he's coming back uh, and perhaps by the time, you know, this podcast airs, they may have already announced it, but it seems to be impending. But, you know, there are people on Twitter that are saying, how you know, how could they let him back? It's like, man, locker room fights happen all the time. Yeah. We'll put it this way. Out of all the people in professional wrestling dressing rooms in history... I am probably in the 1% of the biggest gutless cowards in wrestling. I am not a fighter. I, I readily admit this. I, that's fine. You know, I'm I'm a lover, not a fighter, John. Yeah, same thing here, baby. The, but uh, even I was in a dressing room fight. No. Now, I will say this. I waited uh, until I was basically uh, I was having a verbal altercation with a wrestler, uh, Chili Willie. Um, we, uh, so I, I wear glasses, uh, in my personal life. I can't see a damn thing without them. Um, so when I would work as a manager, if I knew I was taking a bump, I wouldn't wear them. Um, but, uh, when we don't call anything, um, I would sometimes wear them cause I literally couldn't see anything without it. Uh, so on this particular occasion, uh, we hadn't called anything in the back for me to take a bump. So I was like, all right, you know, I'll just wear the glasses. After the match was over, Chile lost uh, because of my interference. He, on the fly, without, you know, without calling it or anything like that, grabbed me uh, and uh, picked me up and slammed me and broke my glasses. So I was pretty hot. I also, you know, I had to drive five hours home, literally holding um, the, the, my glasses to my head so I could oh, see until I found a rest stop where I could get some, where I could buy some scotch tape. 
Um, so I, I yelled at him in the back. I had no intention of fighting, but I wanted to let him know that was not cool. He was not having any of it. He was in my face. Um, I looked around. I saw three of my allies um, approaching. So I knew if anything physical happened, it was going to be really, really quick. Chili Willie was a big muscular guy. He would have killed me in a real fight. But I waited till uh, my guys were right up on me, and then I shoved Chili. And he was about he was about to get back on me and, and beat the crap out of me, but my guys grabbed him and 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 separated us. Ah, the Duke of New York. So yeah, so if the biggest puss uh, in, in the wrestling locker rooms, even if you, even he got in a fight, you have an <laughs> idea of how many. Now I I can't tell you how many fights I saw in the locker rooms plenty so again i just i find it so amusing that everyone's up in arms over the young bucks uh and, and the cm punk slash a steel slash a steel's dog and Kenny Omega <laughs> getting in a fight but yeah jack uh yeah i i i don't think any any of them punched the other's head out of shape no whatever happened there was no everyone retained the shape of their head after yeah. brawl out from what I've seen. So for more on Joe Dusick's All-Star Wrestling Territory in 1971, be sure to visit chartingtheterritories.com to read A Year in a Life. Uh, like I said, A Year in the Life contains so much more info than we're able to talk about in this podcast. Um, title histories, the spot ratings, the 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 ranking the biggest feuds and showing how how some of the feuds progressed in certain towns, profiles on the claw and Jerry Miller. We have attendance figures for most of the week of the shows in Omaha. They ran Omaha, I think 27 times during the year. And we have attendance figures for 20. So you can get a good feel for what the average house was and what the lineups were when the, uh, when they drew really well, we mentioned earlier, Ramon Torres versus the claw drew the two biggest houses of the year, even outdrawing uh, one of Vern Gagne's appearances in Omaha. Huh. So Ramon Torres outdrew Vern Gagne in Omaha. Wow. So that's something that, uh, you know, I wouldn't have thought of, something new I learned. Mm-hmm. Um, just some of the many things that, John, you and I learn each and every month when we uh, put together this podcast. And at the end of each episode, we each come up with one thing I learned during the months, and we call this segment, This Month I Learned. So, John, what did you learn? So, this sort of ties in, I thought, to uh, what we talked about. One of the guys we talked about this month, uh, not, it was Tom Andrews, Tom Anderson, the, the not necessarily the claw, but him later on, and also sort of ties back to uh, the Amarillo territory that we talked about last month. And I was uh, reading about... Uh, Dr. Dr. Ken Ramey, mm-hmm. uh, one of my favorite territorial era managers, and a lot I, a lot I didn't know. Like I, originally, he started off as like a, as a referee, he was regarded as one of the best referees in the business. But money was not great, and in uh, I think it was '67 or so, he was working working in Georgia, and decided, you know, is uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave the wrestling business. You know, I'm not even gonna leave the business. I'm not gonna start a new life. He was he was gonna go drive all the way to California, get on one of those big old clipper ships, and head to Australia, New Zealand, and get back in the, in the radio business. That's what he had done before before wrestling. Um, so he to drive from Georgia to California. On the drive, he stops off in Amarillo, where he'd worked as a rep for. Um, 
spend a couple days, say goodbye to some of the guys he knew, and just to, you know, to break up the drive of driving across country. Um, and he was at a Saturday morning TV taping. Um, they had no referee. So Dory Sr. says, like, hey, I got a job, you know, as a ref if you need it. Um, and Ramey, Ramey turned it down, saying he's getting out of the business. Um, Ms. Funk is like, okay, I'll give, you, I'll give you 50 bucks to work TV, 75 bucks to work a house show tonight. Um, yeah, and that's it. Uh, you know, then you're done. One and done. And since he's in town, you know, Ramey's like, okay, whatever. It's, you know, why not? Um, so a- after the show, uh, Funk Sr. tells him to come to his house. I'll make you a, a steak dinner. Uh, and uh, that little one night there with uh, Funk Sr. and that steak dinner changed his mind about wrestling. Uh, he was given a little slightly more money than the average prelim guy. Uh, Dory gave him uh, a town to run uh, in Texas. It was a Hereford. Does that sound? Hereford. They, like at the Herford. Bull Barn. The Bull Barn. He ran that town, so he get a cut of that gate. And uh, Dory Sr. also paid him to do the programs hmm. uh, for, for, for that venue. Um, and yeah, and then that, 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 from there, he just kept his interest in wrestling. So it's interesting to think about had he not stopped off, you know, in Amarillo, in Amarillo we might not yeah. have, we might not, what, what, you know, we've, not, we've never gotten the Ken, Dr. Ken Ramey, the wrestling manager. So, so that, that's what I learned this month. I have no idea that this little random stop in Amarillo had effect, so much effect on, you know, wrestling history. Yeah. yeah I thought that was super interesting. That's the, uh, the, the butterfly effect. One of those yeah. types of deals. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. Now I learned so I had a couple of research trips over the last month. Uh, I was last week I was in Indianapolis at the State Library going through microfilm for a new for a few newspapers that aren't available online, and a few weeks prior to that I was in Kansas. I was in uh, Topeka at the Kansas State Archives, where they have not only lots of newspapers on microfilm, but they also have a good deal of files from the Kansas Athletic Commission. Oh, wow. Were, have been saved. Uh, in fact, later this summer, when we cover Heart of America, Central States, we're going to have attendance and gate figures for pretty much every show held in the state of Kansas, thanks wow. to the Kansas State Archives. But they also have license applications for wrestlers for many, but not all, years through the late 70s. There are a couple of years that are missing. And every now and then, uh, these can be used to help solve the identities of some wrestlers. So this month, I learned that the wrestler in Heart of America in early 1976, billed as Ripper Collins, was not the Ripper Collins. Huh. Now, we already suspected this because uh, on WrestlingData.com, there were listings for Ripper Collins in Kansas in early 1976. And at the very same time in Stampede. Hmm. Uh, so unlike Ramon Torres, who's being going back and forth between McGurk and Nebraska for a very specific storyline reason, they're not doing that with Ripper Collins in 1976. Huh. Um, so we always suspected it was somebody else. Uh, I also verified through the Ring-a-Ding-Dong Dandy Stampede fan group on Facebook that... <laughs> 
the Ripper Collins in Stampede in 76 was the Ripper Collins. Uh, some of the people in that group showed me pictures from programs in 1976, and it absolutely is our, you know, the, the famous Ripper Collins. So there was always the question of who this other guy was. And interestingly enough, in the advertisements in the newspapers, they used a five-year-old picture of Evil Eye Gordon. Huh. And this is something that central states did every now and then. There are, uh, for at one point in time, every time Bob Sweetan was advertised, they showed a picture of Dutch Mantel. Oh, um, Dutch. Yeah, exactly. I feel bad for Dutch for that one. And there's a few other instances like that in central states. So this wasn't a, a new thing. It absolutely was not Guillotine Gordon. He was actually out of the business from, I think, 71 through 78. The name on the application for a for a license was uh, John uh, John Medincia, M-A-D-I-N-C-I-A. So I sent a message to Chris Knights. I actually literally while I was going through all the applications, I was uh, communicating with Chris via uh, DMs, um, just going back and forth to, to help him clean up some things. And, and we could go back and forth because I don't know who John Medincia is. I hadn't heard that name before. John Medincia is the wrestler better known as J.B. Psycho. Hmm. It was also one half of the Skull Brothers, uh, I think, for the Sheik and in Toronto. Ah. Huh. So with that information, I, I went out and tried to do a little more digging just to see if I could find one more you know thing to sort of verify it. So the first thing I did was I reached out through a mutual acquaintance to Dave Drayson, uh, another wrestling historian slash personality uh, yep. who was around and in the business uh, uh, and and was close with JB Psycho. I think worked with him quite a bit. Uh, according to Dave, he had never heard of this before. And at first he said, I don't think he ever worked for Bob Geigel. Um, when I told him about the real name um, and then when Dave sort of shared the timetable of JB's career, uh, and and specifically when he retired from wrestling, it was literally right after this run in Central States. Hmm. So there was a few month period of time where no one could place JB Psycho because he didn't retire till the, the late spring of 76, but he couldn't be found anywhere else for those first few months of the year. We figured it out. We We are pretty sure that it was him. Another clue we found was on... You talked about wrestling managers from this era. Percival A. Friend, hmm. who, even though he passed away in 2015, his website, which looked like it was made on GeoCities, is still up. <laughs> oh, good. And on that site, he lists many of the wrestlers he managed over the years. And it is somewhat chronological. And, and towards the end, he lists J.B. Psycho. And we have no records of him managing J.B. Psycho when he was J.B. Psycho or when he was a Skull Brother. And since it's chronological based on when he put J.B.'s name, it almost certainly was this run in Heart of America. So to me, that is more than enough evidence. Uh, yeah, yeah. Really, the application was enough because no one's going to put a fake name on a wrestler application and have it be the name of a different wrestler. No, so. No, no. Yeah, so this month I learned. That's a long-winded way of me saying this month I learned that the person billed as Ripper Collins in 1976 in Kansas was actually the wrestler 
better known as J.B. Psycho. Huh. Wow. Good work. Yeah. that's But that's an example of how I try and go above and beyond. It's not just, okay, well, the application says this, so it must be J.B., uh, me and Chris sort of brainstormed, you know, exactly what else we could do to figure it out. Like I said, getting the photos from Stampede to verify that it was the real Ripper Collins in Stampede, talking to Dave Drayson and, and doing whatever I could to try and find some more evidence, uh, to help, uh, you know, sort through all the BS as, as Don Luce is probably saying, uh, from above. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So this month we went small, John, covering one of these smaller territories. In fact, it might end up being the smallest. Well, Arizona. What what's left of Arizona in 1971 is probably the smallest. And I don't think Arizona was a full-time territory at this time. So this might be the smallest full-time territory in 71. But to make up for it, next month we're going to go big. We're going to look big. at Jim Crockett Promotions. Big Jim Ooh, big in Jim. 1971. Yeah. Still with us, yeah. Yeah, 71 featured the end of George Becker's two-decade-long run for Jim Crockett and a whole slew of tag teams. Um, and I think everybody knows this, that until uh, George Scott took over as Booker in 73, this was a tag team territory. We're, we're, so we're really going to see something different in how the rankings work out, how spot ratings work out, how feuds work out. It also had a very small turnover. Guys like Hawk and Hanson or Brute Bernard or Nelson Royal, you know, they were here for years and years. As a matter of fact, the biggest feud in 1971, it was a tag team feud. And in 1971, the two teams wrestled each other at least 67 times. However, they had wrestled each other at least 20 times in the previous three, in each of the previous three years. Oh, wow. The same two teams had wrestled each other over 20 times in 1968, over 20 times in 1969, and over 20 times in 1970, and with our uh, more detailed records for 71, at least 67 times in that year. Mm. So it, it really is amazing how fans were not, you know, didn't find things stale. Uh, yeah. So hopefully we'll be able to dig into how they booked this feud in all the various towns to keep it fresh. Because it yeah. sounds real easy to get sick of it, but you know a good booker will find ways to make something seem different or fresh and exciting, even if it's a repeat of what they've been seeing for years. So to follow me on Twitter, uh, you can catch me at Al Gets Wrestling. That's Al G E T Z wrestling of course a lot of the things john and i have talked about on this podcast i will post on twitter shortly after this episode comes out and by the time our next episode comes out the second thursday of june i'm hoping that my second book will be on sale if Ooh. not it will be imminent because my goal is to have it out in the springtime which means i have until june 20th so uh, working feverishly to put the finishing touches on everything. And hopefully, uh, if it's not out before the next episode airs, I will be able to announce uh, an on-sale date or, or something along those lines. So keep on the lookout for that. And John, uh, where can our listeners find you? And what do you have uh, in the works? Oh, uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, as usual, J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. Now that it's been announced officially, I can tell everyone if i'm slow to respond to your 
messages or, or emails because I've been working on the uh, season of Dark Side of the Ring. So that's right. coming season up. Season four? Three? Season four, four. baby. Four. Wow. So working on that. So if you, if, you, if you, when, when the show is out, like May 30th. So if you, if, if you like anything about the show this season, you know, you can probably credit me. I will right. take all the credit. All the, all the good stuff about the episodes are from John. Anything Everything they get like? wrong when they claim that McGurk's territory had been called Tri-State Wrestling for decades. Yep. That's not John. That that's not me. That that is that is uh, that is uh, that's that is not me. But if anyone's career gets ruined, not me. Fair enough. Anything anything you like, I'm willing. Although I, I love if, that. if anyone wants to ruin my career, uh, please do. <laughs> I, I want to take Al Haft's word words to heart. And stop taking this so serious. So if anyone if anyone has any dirt on me and they, they want me to get canceled, please put it out there. Put me out of my misery. <laughs> until until that time, the Charting the Territories podcast comes out on the second Thursday of the month. And to be the first to know when new episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. For John, this is Al Getz signing off. We will see you guys in June, where, John, we're going to be talking about Big Jim Crockett. Big Jim, baby. See you in June.